Sometimes on Thanksgiving, I look around the room and I think, who are these people? How to make it out of here? Is this really my extended family? Uh, how did I get up in this? How did I end up in this family? I know my immediate family, but who are all these? And, and what I found this week is uh, I got two different sides of family that we see a lot. And one, uh, one is really big, large family, extended family, connecting with, with all the, uh, the siblings and kids and grandkids and great-grandkids of multiple people. And I'm just like, what is this? And then I think of this text, and I'm coming this week to, like, how, how is this possible? How is this a vision of a family that is wildly diverse yet united? How is that possible? Because even in my own family, uh, we're not wildly diverse, but also we don't have that much unity. <laughs> pretty, pretty homogenous and pretty divided. So, so how can this vision, how can this be a reality for people in this room? So I was in a room on, on Thursday with a bunch of people. What I'm saying is that beyond or deeper than blood, our blood, our family, there's something deeper that actually makes diversity, wild diversity, robust diversity, and unity a thing. It can actually happen and truly it has happened. So I want to see this. Uh, we look at it with me. It's Ephesians 2. We're looking at 11 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, as Miss Ali said, there's one in your chairs. Grab one around page 1,000. Right. So Ephesians 2, verse 11. I want you to see it with me. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Remember. Remember. Things that will be said this morning, you've probably heard many times before. It doesn't matter because what he's saying is we must remember what has happened to us. Why? So that we'd appreciate our present position you know, contrasted versus where we've been. That we'd appreciate our current status by recollecting, by recalling where we were and how we got to this point. One time you were this. That's what he says. One time, one time, one time, you were this, 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 but now. So what were they? What were we? He says the uncircumcised. That's who we were. I, I, I just know our family that, that well that I think there's too many people of Jewish descent in this room. So I would assume if you ain't Jewish, you're Gentile, right? That's all of you. So you're all, all of us, we're the uncircumcised. What does that mean? It means literally those with foreskins. And so for them, they had this ethnic pride of we're the ones that haven't circumcised all of you. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, right? That big old map of the United States. 
Texas and ain't Texas. That's what they're saying. They're Jewish and they ain't Jewish. So all the Gentiles, they look down upon saying, you are the ones that still have this. You still have this problem. There's a big physical difference between us and ours makes us better than you. He's highlighting this real difference between Gentile and Jew. But he goes on to note that, that through the work of Christ, the physical difference is of no ultimate significance. We're going to get to it, but it's not about the skin. It's about the heart. So who were they? They were there uncircumcised. They were without the Messiah. They're separated from the Messianic hope of Israel. Paul says of his Jewish kinmen in Romans 9, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. It's all theirs. It belongs to them. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praise forever. So they were without the Messiah. They have no clue, really, that they need a Messiah, and who is the true Messiah. Number three, foreigners, outsiders, foreigners to the covenant of promise. So they don't know the messianic, the messianic hope of Jesus, but all that's connected to the the Old Testament promises, the covenants with Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. They don't know this. They're outside the family. They're generally outsiders and felt as such, treated as such. What else? Hopeless and godless. It's a wild kind of ironic thing for him to claim or say about them because they were in a culture and probably in practice poly, polytheistic, right? They worshiped many gods. Back to Ephesians, back to remembering this, right? At least they're worshiping Artemis plus probably the other 50 gods in this city. But he's saying you're without God, meaning you're without the true God who has created everything and is actually above and reigns over any other principality and power. You don't know him, so you don't know hope. Not know it, you don't even have it. Without hope, this is who you were. So we need to, like them, remember Remember that at one time you were, you were, but then appreciate where you are now. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. This is another hinge, uh, a lynch, a hinge. That's what I'm trying to get to. A hinge of this text, just like chapter two of, but, 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 but. God, this is the same thing happening here. You were, you were, you were, you were, but Jesus, boom. And that's what he's going to go off on. So look at it, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands expressed in regulations so that he, Jesus, might create himself one new man from the two, 
resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He, Jesus, came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, for through Jesus, we, Gentiles and Jews, sinners, sufferers, white, black, poor, wealthy, have one, have access in one spirit to the Father. No matter where you've been, you have one access with the Father. Jesus here is the singular promise throughout the covenants. He fulfills the covenants. His blood cuts a new covenant. His blood establishes a new covenant. He's come after the wandering, the far off, and pulled them near to himself. This is Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 57. The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. So whether you have 10 generations of Jewish blood in your family line, or if you're born on the other side of the world, Jesus, by his death, pulls all of them to himself, and they're no longer far. They're brought near by the blood of Christ. I want you to see the emphasis on what Christ has done here, what Paul's saying, uh, uh, just emphasizing that this is what Jesus has done to reverse our condition. Do you hear me? So this, you were, you were, you were, but now should not end in us boasting in our accomplishments. It comes back to, to Ephesians 2, 9 through 10, that we're not going to boast in ourselves. We didn't get ourselves here. We didn't pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and made us close. No, Christ made both groups one. Christ tore down the wall. Christ made of no effect. Christ created. Christ reconciled. Christ proclaimed. And so in response, hallelujah, what a savior. Kids, can you say hallelujah? It means praise the Lord. So kids, praise the Lord. Or say it. I love it. I'm going to keep trying to keep you engaged. What about Bluey, guys, huh? What's the deal with Bluey? That's my Seinfeld reference. We were the uncircumcision. We were without the Messiah. We were foreigners. We were godless and hopeless. But Jesus has brought us peace. You see that? In verse 14, for he is our peace. Family, look at me real quick. Peace is not found in a substance. Peace is not found in the, uh, the, the, the absence of conflict. Peace is found in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus who fulfills, again, Isaiah 9-6. He's the prince of peace and he's established a kingdom how is it characterized a kingdom of peace it's his sacrifice meaning his bloody death on the cross that serves as the source of our peace isaiah 53 5 
But Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment, do you hear me? Punishment for our peace was on him. So how how do you experience peace? How has peace been won for you? It's by a warrior king going before you and conquering your enemies and then pulling you into the family and saying, no, 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 I'll be punished so that you can know peace. I will be wounded so that you can be healed. Peace with a father and peace with other humans in the body of Christ. This is what we have. Jesus has brought us peace I I could also say Jesus has bought us peace. Meaning he paid for it by his blood, but then he also brought it to us. He brought us near and said, this is now peace. Why? Because before, you don't get this, we don't get this. We still push back on this. (laughs) Think about the dividing, dividing wall of hostility. Before I get to thinking about the Father, just thinking about the temple. Think about Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were not allowed to enter the temple enclosure in Jerusalem. There's a large paved area surrounding the temple and its inner courts. And that then was double enclosed by pillars standing 37 feet high. But this whole outside the temple was called the Gentile court. You guys can hang outside. You guys can have this area, but you cannot come in. You cannot have access to the inner courts or the temple. And so they would have this, they they had this large space for them, but between them and the inner courts was a four and a half wall, a kind of pony wall, dividing wall between them and between the Jewish people who could go into the inner courts and worship God together josephus the historian writes that there's 13 slabs at this time in the second temple 13 slabs on this four and a half wall saying no don't come in can you imagine that can you imagine can you imagine if if our signs out there right here were like nah not you guys you hang outside what if we ran speakers outside and we're like hey uh if you're this kind of group of people you guys stay out there you don't get to come in here with us. Like, this is what's happening. The, the, the inscription, they found two of these tablets that, that stand around that are warning signs, say not go. This is what they said. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Woo! If you, if you move past this, uh, there will be no hearing. There will be no cops showing up. It's, you're going to be put to death, and it's your fault we told you. I mean, what if you were outside and couldn't come in? What if you're told no? What if we had those speakers out? Or, or maybe not what if. Think about what has happened. Even in our own history, in the north, there were churches, white churches that first were just fully integrated. But at some point, they started moving and said, hey, all the black people, you guys need to go to the balcony. We need to push you to the balcony. You can sit there, 
but you can't sit here. This is reserved for these people. You guys need to move, like, literally to the margins. You know what happened over time? The African-American people realized what was happening and said, hey, this isn't right. We'll start a church so that we can actually sit and worship the Lord together as a people and not have some of us pushed to the sidelines. And then Paul, Paul also knows this barrier very well. He was falsely accused in Jerusalem for taking a Gentile Trophifum. I can't, I can't say his name. I didn't write it correctly. His name is not Trophies. It's Trophimus. Trophimus. It doesn't matter. He got accused of bringing this guy, who's clearly a Gentile by his name. It's a terrible name. Uh, bringing him into the inner courts. This was the reason for his initial imprisonment in Jerusalem. Why did he get thrown in prison in Jerusalem? Because of this, they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts. And so his language in this verse appears to make allusion to this barrier, a symbol of the alienation of the Gentiles from the Jewish people, from citizenship in Israel, alienation from the promises, alienation from access to the one true God. Paul declares that the barrier separating Gentiles from God and from Jews has now been destroyed. That Jesus destroyed the wall. The hostility between us and the Father, meaning our enmity, our hatred, our rebellion against him, and the hostility between us, his people, has been torn down. If you're old enough like me or older than me, then you, you realize or remember, not realize, you remember these famous words of, of President Bush saying, Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And, and you've got to have some semblance of saying that a little bit. That's what the father told the son before creation in planning and, and preparing to see what is the story of redemption going to be and the father tells the son what you're going to do is you're going to go and by your death in their place you are going to kill all the hostility you're going to beat down that wall that thing that has separated that has cut us off that has removed us that has taken us away from that has kept us at his arm distance from the father and from one another has been Torn down. So can I say again, in this line of thinking, ethnic superiority dies when you die in Christ. Hatred between peoples and tribes and languages and ethnicities dies when you die in Christ. No matter your background, no matter your history, no matter your upbringing, we are at peace together. Why? Because we're in Christ. And Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, says, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. 
This is what the gospel does. It takes people who are enemies, who hated one another, who actually fought against one another and makes them family. Jesus has brought us peace. He's also made us one new humanity. You see that when he says he's reconciled us together. He's made both groups one. Reconciliation is the the restoration of a relationship after some kind of rupture, some kind of brokenness, some kind of conflict. But God has not only brought about the possibility of a close relationship with himself, but, but between two groups, formally at enmity with one another. That within the church, there's a new humanity that cares for one another, loves one another, and is united because of Christ. And more than just, meaning, meaning more than just removing the hate between us, the hostility between us, he made us one new, diverse, and united family. So not, not just like in our, just like in our salvation, he not only uh, takes away our sins and forgiveness, but then he also credits his Christ's righteousness to us. In this sense, he not only takes the hostility away, but then he, he injects love. Like your relationship now with him and with one another in the body is not marked or characterized by enmity or conflict, but with deep affection because we're one in Christ. Eric Mason described, defined reconciliation as the restoration of friendly relationships and of peace where there had previously been hostility and alienation. Ordinarily, it also includes the removal of the offense that caused the disruption of peace and harmony. The restoration. In verse 17, it says that Jesus preached peace. When he came and he said in Mark 1, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And throughout the rest of his preaching of repentance and turn to God, you know what he's saying? Swords are going to be, be beaten into plowshares. Why? Because I'm here now. The Prince of Peace has arrived. The Prince of Peace is going to set a kingdom of peace upon this earth in his body, in his family, the church that's going to endure forever. That's what he's done. Shalom. It's a restoration of what's been broken from the fall. That this whole world was created for shalom, for this peace, this robust peace, this wholeness between all of our our relationships. Tim Keller defines the biblical concept of shalom as universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. He says, God created the world to be a fabric for everything to be woven together and interdependent. That's how he created the world. And how did he recreate this new humanity, the church, this diverse group of people that's been brought into one new humanity, what has he done? He's woven us together and we're interdependent. Thursday night at my grandma's house, I put about seven quilts on my kids to keep them warm because my grandma's house has the insulation. Well, I can't make a joke. That has a lot of insulation. 
It doesn't have much insulation. I don't have a joke. I threw seven quilts on these boys. Why? Because they're cold. I'm going to try to keep them warm. But I was trying to tell them about the quilt. If it's been quilted together and these little pieces and why I love these quilts. And I was telling them about it. It's why I love the church as well. It's what God has done is woven together this beautiful tapestry of different people, different gifts and different backgrounds into one beautiful fabric that's interdependent and shows off the glory of Christ together so much more than one little piece can. You hear what I'm saying? You are one little piece of the quilt, the fabric that God has woven together. You show off the glory of God, but the quilt greater magnifies the glory of God because it shows off how can these people be together and have peace and love one another? It doesn't make any sense. In Acts 13, you see the diversity in the family. You see just in the leaders of the church in Antioch that there's some really wealthy men. There's some uh, uh, people from Africa. There's some not wealthy people. There's some just the typical teachers. That's what's happening. Just a diverse group. How can these people be together? Jesus. That's how. Has taken this broken people with all of these things. So for many of us, there's not a physical barrier between us and other people, but there is a cognizant barrier. There is a mental barrier. There is a heart barrier between us and them. So we, we don't need to physically break down bricks. What we need to is submit to what Jesus has done. You can't erect bears when Christ has already beaten them down. Do you hear me? Stop. This is a major point, so I'm going to say it again. Stop erecting barriers in your heart against other people when Jesus has already died to destroy them. It is antithetical to the gospel to re-erect, to rebuild things that separate you from others in the body of Christ when Christ died so that all those would die. So why revive? Why zombify? Why bring back to life something that's already been put to death? Let it die. Nicholas Ultrasorf says this about shalom. He says, shalom is not merely the absence of hostility, not merely being in right relationship, shalom at its highest is enjoyment in one's relationships. That's shalom. Enjoyment. In our relationship with the Father, now that we have because of Christ, and our relationship with one another that we have, we get to enjoy. That's shalom. That it moves beyond just the absence of conflict, actual enjoyment and love, and affection, and yes, we're in this together, and I love it. Lastly, Jesus has given us direct access to the Father. Access to the Father is no longer through the temple, priesthood, or based on being a Jew. Jews and Gentiles alike now gain access directly to God through the work of Christ and by the dwelling Spirit. The very presence of God is now with His 
people. So you don't have to cross the barriers and walk into the temple, get past the walls. You don't have to walk into the Holy of Holies with a string wrapped around your ankle because if you mess up, you might die in there and they'll drag you out. No, you don't have to do any of that. You actually don't have to set up any precautions. You don't have to set up any precautions to go to the Father. For you and I, that's, that's normal, right? If you've been a Christian for a year, that's normal. It is bizarre. It is amazing that now you can just talk to him right now and drive in your car on the way home and talk to him and in the kitchen and on your bed that you don't have to come here to pray to him. You don't have to come through me to pray to him. Jesus is your mediator, so you can go straight to the Father at any point in time. You're not on the outside looking in on other people's relationship with God. You're enjoying your relationship with God and them. You're not pushed outside to say, what are they doing in there? Who are they worshiping? What is he about? What's he really like? No, you've been brought in directly talking to him, directly experiencing his presence through his spirit, actually enjoying a genuine and lovely relationship with the Father. That's what you've been pulled into. And so let me tell you a few things by words of application. Number one, racism is a sin to be put to death. I've got 2,200 words. That's why I've been speeding through this with some kids. But let me slow down for a second. Number one, racism is a sin to be put to death. It has no place in the church of God because every man and every woman and every child is made in the image of God. So your ethnicity, your cultural customs, your family of origin doesn't make you superior to anyone. We all have dignity value and worth. Why? Because we're stamped with the image of God. Or as Jane puts it, God shows no partiality. You're not more precious to him than others because of your ethnicity. He created the beautiful tapestry of the nations and through redemption is weaving together a family from all nation, tribes, and tongues. So on the negative part, your ethnicity is not your mediator. It has not made you righteous before God. Only Jesus can do that. The Bidi Anyabuile in the Gospel and Racial Reconciliation, Reconciliation says this. If we don't take sin seriously, we'll be tempted to think that racism, racial animosity, prejudice, and bigotry are justifiable in some measure or, er <laughs> or erased by education alone. You cannot educate people out of racism, racial hatred, and animosity. This is why the practical Pelagian approach to racial reconcili reconciliation ends with so many people exhausted and frustrated. They misdiagnose how deep the problem is, so they use the wrong tools to address it. Mankind, though made in God's image, is corrupted at the root by sin. We need a solution to racial strife that can reach the root of man's being. And then he says this. 
the gospel frees us to joyfully admit our sins, including racism, face ugly things about ourselves, and to tell the truth about what's lurking in our hearts, even when it's unpleasant. That's when we find hope. Confession would be a blessing in this fight for racial reconciliation. What's the alternative? Pretend that these are not problems in our society. Pretend they were not affected by racism or that it no longer exists. If racism does not exist, it will be the first sin produced by the fall that was completely cured apart from the gospel. So what I'm saying is by our life in response to this is to live out the truth of what Christ has done for us, meaning I know and believe that my ethnicity does not make me superior to someone else. My ethnicity does not gain me access to the Father. My ethnicity is not a point of pride that I can boast in and say, this is what I am. This is all what it's all about. No, it's in, subject to say, I am now in Christ. And so, is my brother and sister. Even if they're from a different place in the world, even if they're from a different nation, if they're, even if they have a different language. And so... If there's anything that's in me that that still leads to or goes to superiority or in moments uh, belittle, ridicule, or degrade people of another ethnicity or, or culture, then that is, again, another sin that needs to be put to death. That, that actually needs to be talked about and confessed. I know racism is such a big issue. To confess that there's any race, racism in you may mean your cancellation, but that's not in our family. Meaning, some of you have been and still harbor racist ideas and philosophies. And if what you hear from me is don't ever talk about it and suppress it and push it down, then it's going to be another sin in your secret garden of your interior life that no one knows about that you're going to just allow to breed and, and, and grow. And so rather than denying it so we, ha- so we feel like, oh, that's not us, let's actually admit it, confess it, and put it to death like every other sin. Like every other sin in our life. That needs to be dealt with, confess, repent of, and put to death. It's another one. So how about we confess and be honest? That we've drifted and we found our identity in our ethnicity, our identity in our culture, our identity in our family, rather than ultimately and preeminently our identity is in the preeminent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, racism is sin, needs to be put to death. And number two, a diverse, united family is not easy. It's not easy. It's been achieved, accomplished for us by Christ, but experiencing and living out that unity in real life with real people that are sinners and, and has some racism in their hearts and in our hearts and, and, and some uh, pride, arrogance, conflict. It takes sweat. It takes love. It takes being aware and sensitive of other people's cultures and practices. It means laying aside preferences, ours, <laughs> to serve other people, 
It means being less close-handed on the items you might have grew up with and you prefer, but aren't gospel issues. So open your hand a little bit and let's not fight over second-handed issues. Let's, let's unite on the main issue. What's of utmost importance? It means that we might do things different. Mine's, it means that we, we sometimes read the scripture in Spanish and English. It means sometimes we, we sing songs in Spanish to serve our brothers and sisters in our family whose heart language is Spanish. Or to serve the non-Christians in our neighborhood so they, they feel welcome in our home and can hear the gospel and meet Jesus. My, my prayer, particularly with this building, is that we would look alike the neighborhood we're in. Not to to go after diversity for the sake of diversity, but go after Jesus and say, what does it look like for Jesus' people to gather in a particular area? It, they usually look like the people around them, right? It's consistent of made up of people that we've reached and people that have been won by Christ and now have pulled into the family. And I just, I want that. I want our church to reflect, to look like our neighborhood we're planted in. Waverly Park Elementary is 42% Hispanic. This zip code is 28% Hispanic, 11% black. I just I want us to keep reaching this area. Why? <laughs> because, well, number one, for the glory of God. And then number two, there's something beautiful about the fabric of a diverse and united family that puts on display the glory of God like, like nothing else and further shows other people that, that peace and unity and love can really happen in a diverse group of people. That's amazing. That's what it's showing off. And then I want also us to experience heaven and a piece of heaven is this tapestry of all people, of, of peoples from all nations and all tribes and all languages, rescued, bought by Jesus' blood, given peace, pulled into the family, brought near, and now have direct access to the Father forever. That's what I want. in our church and serving one another. This might mean being aware of generational differences, but not harping on them and being condescending to millennials or ignoring boomers. Instead, you can lay down your generational preferences, sacrifice your expectations so you can serve. Harping on your differences erects another barrier between you and that brother or that sister. Stop harping on everything that separates you and realize what has been done to you. Oh, we have these things. Oh, we see this differently. Oh, this is a problem. Oh, Jesus has made you a new family. We're one. Let's experience that. Let's in that. So I just need to ask in this diverse and you, you united family, going to Ephesians 4, when Paul will then pick up Ephesians 2 here and say, so let's strive for unity. Let's strive to, to maintain the unity that's been bought for us. So that means we should consider what do we need to lay down 
for that unity? What have we erected? What have we made a barrier between us that shouldn't be? What have we put? What hostility may we recreated when it's already been put to death? What do you need to lay down to sacrifice so you can serve the people in this church and this city? Because Jesus has given us peace and made us one, we enjoy our relationships. That's shalom. We actually enjoy them. And we strive for unity. And we live at peace with one another, if at all possible. We reconcile when we sin against one another. We cry out to our Father for help. We repent and ask for forgiveness. We lay down preferences. We hold tight to things of first importance and hold pretty loosely everything else. Why? Because you were, we were at war. We were hated by others. We did hate the Lord loved our sin. We were at war. Foreigners, cast off, set aside, hopeless, without God, at war. But the king, the prince of peace came and didn't crush his enemies to win peace like the Pax Romana. He was crushed by the Father to win our peace. Meaning, Look at me, family. You are palpably loved by the Father. He sent his son to not experience peace, but experience war on him so that he would win our peace. So in response, let's boast in Jesus Let's fight for unity. Let's reconcile with one another when sin happens. Let's, let's, let's fight against racism in our hearts. Let's, let's set aside some preferences and to keep striving for the joy and unity found in Jesus by his death and by his presence with us right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. Thank you that we can even call out to you right now pray to you even call you father so we we ask you that we would remember this remember and recall where we were and where we are now and thank you and praise you and boast in you and celebrate you and make much of you and keep fighting for joy and peace and unity in this family. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.